This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, I hope you're well. I'm Cassie Huff with you for the last country hour before Christmas in 2022. I can imagine there's a lot happening out in the paddocks at the moment. People trying to get as much done as they can before Christmas. Hope you are able to take a a break. I know the weather is warming up next week. Uh, I'll have the weather soon and a look at at what could be a bit of a summer heatwave looming. That's coming up soon. And uh, in the parcel zone, Drones are being used to help deal with the wild dog problem. Really having something in the four to six hours of endurance with 100 kilos payload is the holy grail for the type of work we're doing in a large-scale area in the pastoral region. I'll have more on that soon as uh, lots of technology is coming into the space uh, quite a long way for those drones to go but we'll see just uh, what they can achieve soon but first up today 2022 really has been the year when biosecurity came to the fore so it's not surprising that we have a biosecurity update just before Christmas and this time it's around locusts there have been concerns about locust numbers growing due to the wet conditions in central Australia surveillance has been done a few times this year we had a report into the program yesterday that large numbers of locusts had been seen around Borough. Now, Executive Director for Biosecurity at the Department of Primary Industries and Regions SA, Nathan Rhodes, can give you a bit of an update on what is happening out there when it comes to locusts. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So we're hearing that there could be some locusts around the mid-north, the upper mid-north. What are you hearing? Yeah, we have had some reports of locust activity, uh, particularly around the Borough, Jamestown, Peterborough areas, uh, but also in the upper and western Air Peninsula. Uh, we've had a few calls of uh, producers who have noticed a bit of locust activity in, in their, uh, their crops and have let us know um, uh, of those particular areas. How concerning are the numbers that you're hearing about? The numbers that are being reported to us aren't of, of uh, a level where biopers would have to respond. So, as you're probably aware, uh, locust activity is, is not an unusual thing uh, and PERSA does come in and... Uh, undertake a response to high numbers of locusts and, and large uh, and widespread locust activity. But in a, in a general sense, the responsibility for managing locusts uh, on, on a landholder's property do fall to the landowner unless they get to a stage where, where landowners can't, uh, can't respond adequately and we need to involve. But uh, what we've found so far is that those numbers are relatively isolated and, and are low enough that the landholders can control them themselves. And are they largely consistent with your surveillance that, that PERSA was doing through the year to, to just keep an eye on where the locust numbers were at? Yes, they are. Um, it, these are the areas that we would normally expect to see locust activity as well and also it, it are consistent with the early surveys that we did this year where we got an idea that there might be some emergence coming uh, later in the year when the weather warmed and, and that is, uh, is now being borne out by these reports. Are you expecting things to get worse as summer goes on? No, we're not. The work that we did during uh, springtime uh, with a lot of on-ground and helicopter surveillance work did show that the emergence wasn't going to be quite uh, what it could have been, and that could be a, a result of the climatic conditions. So we're comfortable now that we, we don't think we're going to have a widespread and, and uh, high numbers of locusts uh, across any part of the state, and so we've 
we've now uh, stood down that surveillance and, and we'll wait until uh, we get further reports to determine if any action is required. Well, that is, is good to hear. If people do come across locusts on their property, though, what do you want them to do? So landholders can control locusts on their own properties. Uh, it's probably best to spray for locusts when they're at the hopper stage rather than adults, so get in, get in early when you see them. Uh, once adults become mobile, it's a bit harder to manage with a, with a spray. Um, but you can spray adults uh, you know, when protecting a, a specific crop or, or pasture is necessary, uh, and it's best to target them either um, late in the evening or early in the morning when they're settled on the ground and, and not quite as mobile. I'm speaking to the Executive Director of Biosecurity at Perza Nathan Roads. While we're speaking about biosecurity, something that's been a bit of a shock to a lot of grain producers, particularly across the uh, mid-north and upper mid-north regions, is this emergence of white grain disorder. A lot of people had never seen it before, but Biosecurity SA put out a note about this recently. What are you wanting growers to know? Yeah, so it's important that growers are aware that, uh, that this disease is present. It's a fungal disease that affects the quality of the, the wheat. And again, due to the, the wet and humid climatic conditions that we've had uh, during the flowering period, it's really provided ideal conditions for this plant disease to emerge. And we are starting to, to see some reports of, uh, of the disease being present, particularly across the, the mid-north, the Mallee and the southeast, uh, where we're getting reports of uh, bleached wheat, wheat ears. Is there any testing that's being done given, given um, it hasn't really been seen that much and it's, it's being assessed largely on a visual basis at the moment, but are there, are any test, is there any testing possible for, for farmers to, to work out exactly what they've got? Because I understand it could possibly be um, mistaken for something else. Yes, that's right. It can be. Uh, there are similar sy- uh, symptoms or signs uh, for another fungal disease, which is present at the moment too, uh, known as Fusarium head blight. Um, however, there are pathology tests that can be run to determine exactly what the, the fungal genus is that's responsible for those signs, and that will then determine whether it's a, a white grain disorder or, or something different. How much of a concern is this white grain disorder? Uh, look, it is a concern for producers. Uh, it, um, it can produce uh, allergies in people. It's not one that will cause uh, any particular um, significant illness as a result of mycotoxins that uh, may affect humans or livestock. Uh, the main issue for producers is that uh, the presence of the disease will result in a downgrade at uh, grain receivables um, where there is a limit on the, the number of white grains that uh, that, that is acceptable um, and for white grain disorder, the tolerance is, is of 1% in a 300-grain sample. Well, it certainly was a bit of a surprise to a lot of growers. Fortunately, it does seem as though segregations have been opened up at silos to, to help people still be able to deliver it, even if they are above the 1% Grain Trade Australia restrictions on the amount of white grain disorder that is allowed. So uh, that is good to hear, but uh, hopefully it doesn't cause too many more issues. Thanks so much for your time today and Merry Christmas. I hope you have a, a lovely holiday period. Merry Christmas to you and your, and your listeners. Thank you. Executive Director for Biosecurity at Person Nathan Rhodes, speaking there. Now, uh, speaking of, I guess, biosecurity in another sense, in Outback Australia, drones are playing an increased role in the surveillance and management of feral animals in the pastoral region where the train can be rugged. Baiting and trapping wild dogs is almost impossible and having an airborne system is proving to be a success. Over time, baiting drone systems have improved and the latest model is set to revolutionise wild dog control yet again. Pastelist and Managing Director of Autonomous Technology, Nigel Brown, hopes his new drone will be offered to pastoralists in the future. 
So we designed an airborne baiting carousel mechanism that can be carried under drone systems and it was really designed for those hard to reach areas in the pasture region. Virtually from your fence line you can only see say 10, 20, 30 metres inland and there's a lot of ridge lines there that are very hard to tackle and having an airborne system is the best way to get there. And the idea to bait by drone was conceived by yourself and uh, fellow pastoralist Maine Janor. From it being an idea until now, what success have you experienced? So we've got the system now, you know, up and running in Jingamara Mika Station. So we're doing a fair bit of, you know, flight operations and testings there on quite an extensive bridge line on those properties. So we've been having a lot of success with the airborne trials and dropping baits and geotagging where they are for future reference. Ground baiting and trapping is still said to be the most popular forms of managing wild dogs. Do you see the drone baiting system as a way of the future? Look, I really see it as a tool in their toolbox. Um, they do an amazing job on foot on in the car um, and trapping and baiting um, and just their wealth of knowledge is, is unbelievable and I think really the drone is just a, another tool to fight dogs and to get into those hard to reach areas or to have a larger coverage in a more efficient way. You know, very easy access to repetitions and, you know, baits are affected by rain events and obviously over time the bung arrows are eating them so... You know, it's something that you have to go back to and continue to keep doing to, to mitigate the risk of the dogs. So the drones are very user-friendly in doing a repeat flight over the same area and you know, just keeping on top of your baiting. You're looking into a hybrid, bigger fuel-powered drone just to maximise flying time. How's that going? Yeah, look, that's still in the development phase. We're just looking, obviously, you know, at the project on a whole for that to get a budget across the line. Um, Really having something in the four to six hours of endurance with 100 kilos payload is the holy grail for the type of work we're doing in a large-scale area in the pastoral region. And to think about this on-ground being used in in practical terms, can we really see a big shift in the way dogs are going to be managed? Look, I think the baiting system really provides that larger scale coverage but in areas that you traditionally wouldn't be baiting you know those hard to reach areas that are you know obviously very vast and I think the drone brings that capabilities to doggers or pastoralists that you know they can have a management plan that they can do you know relatively easy and and fairly fast and effectively. And of course there's lots of financial constraints when it comes to high-end drone systems. For pastoralists listening to this who may be interested in moving to drone what practical steps can they take? Yeah, look, there's real, really there's a lot of drones on the system on the market at the moment. Um, the ones we've been working on, obviously, you need to have a long, long flight time and a long payload, and they're really not common drones at the moment on the marketplace for just general people to purchase. Hence, why we went down that development route. But as our project matures, our goal is to try and get them, you know, larger scale productions, get the cost down, and make it more affordable for the partialists to invest in. Over the years, how have you seen the wild dog management style change? Well, I think there's just been a lot of talk about, you know, how to bring technology into into the space. And sadly, they've, you know, in a way been asked to cover more area with, you know, less doggers. So it's been looking at then what, what tools could we try to develop to complement, you know, less people having to do more, more area. Um, and that's really where we're looking for technology to assist in that field. So what sort of funding and support have you had to get the project moving along? So we just got another round of funding just to assist on getting feature recognition software on board the helicopter system. Um, in the early stages of our development, we were carrying a camera system singly um, and then the bait carousel for another flight where what we've seen to 
optimise a system, we want to be able to carry a bait carousel and then a high-end but affordable camera system on the drawing at the same time. So currently we're just developing the system further with a companion computer on board that the video signals going through um, and then with our partnership with the University of New England we're implementing some feral herbivore feature recognition software on board the computer and then the aim of that is to go, be able to autonomously fly and find those feral herbivores from the air. Pastoralist and Managing Director of Autonomous Technology, Nigel Brown. Jeff Power, Chair of the South Australian Dog Fence Board, says that currently in South Australia, trapping, ground and aerial baiting are successful in managing wild dogs. However, he isn't dismissive of adopting drone technology in the future as an additional tool. There's always a place for any tool we can use to eliminate wild dogs below the South Australian dog fence. We certainly haven't used drones to, to bait wild dogs. But look, you know, drones are a thing of the future and you, know, you, would not, you wouldn't dismiss the research. Who knows what might happen? And you know, as, as this research progresses, maybe in the future we will be using drones. Do you think these things will work towards a day where the dogs will be eradicated totally in those areas? That's a a good question. That's our aspiration. That's what we're working towards. There's no doubt about that. And uh, let's hope that that aspiration can be fulfilled. Jeff Power, Chair of the South Australian Dog Fence Board, ending that report by Demetria Panagiotaris. And that project has been funded by the Australian Government with support from Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance and the South West Western Australia Drought Hub. It is 18 minutes past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Weather reports up next, but in the meantime, looks like rain is going to ease across uh, at least uh, eastern Australia in coming weeks and South Australia too by the looks of things with the Weather Bureau predicting the La Nina is showing signs of declining in strength. The bomb's Andrew Watkins says this uh, has meant the weather could be warmer and we'll certainly see that next week. Uh, he says the La Nina, as the La Nina continues to weaken, the rain taps won't turn off completely but overall a drying trend relative to average is now looking likely across much of the country? Well, typically El Ninos and La Ninas break down in in late summer, early autumn. And uh, even if they resurge again, I mean, that's the time they typically weaken. Now, at the moment, we have seen a little bit of weakening of the La Nina, not a lot, but the models are suggesting that things will certainly start to ease over the coming months. And some of the patterns that we're seeing underneath the surface of the Pacific Ocean, the tropical Pacific Ocean, where we're starting to see things warm up there, are typical sort of precursors for the breakdown of La Nina. And we, a lot of farmers I speak to are worried that uh, we're going to go from one extreme to the other, from La Nina to El Nino. Is that, uh, you know, they're worried that it'll go from lots of rain to it'll completely stop raining and we'll start going back into drought. How likely is that sort of scenario or is that even possible? Well, yeah, that's certainly possible. We, we have seen that happen in the past. About about 40% of the time, you swing from a La Nina straight into an El Nino. But we just got to remember that El Nino doesn't automatically mean drought or, or lack of rain. Um, it just increases the odds of that happening, but it doesn't lock it in. There'll always be some areas that uh, get through an El Nino okay. But a little too early to really make a forecast for that next year. There are some models that are heading that way, but at the moment 
most of the models are indicating will will sit somewhere in between El Nino and La Nina in neutral conditions, at least through the autumn. And we have seen that long-term trend towards less rainfall in the autumn when we don't have a, a dominating La Nina. So we may see a little bit of drier conditions sort of into the autumn of next year. But again, a little too early to make a definitive forecast. Well, that was the other question I had. People saying, you know, well, it'd be nice to return to normal. But then others saying, well, what does normal mean now if we've got a one and a half degree increase in global temperatures? Does the new normal mean hotter temperatures anyway and less rainfall? Well, that's, yeah, that's a really important question. And it's one that yeah, we get asked all the time. Look, of course, we do have climate change. We have been seeing that warming up, as you say. But arguably, more importantly, we've been seeing a slow southward march of, of the tropics, effectively. So the big high-pressure systems over Australia have been moving a bit further south at about 60 kilometres a decade. It mightn't sound like much, but when you think back to the, the 1950s or something, you know, that's around... 400 kilometres of southwards movement in our, our weather systems. So, yep, the, the new normal is probably different to what our, our grandparents and so on saw. It is hotter. There is more chance of, of getting those extremes, unfortunately. And it does suggest longer periods of dry interspersed with, with shorter periods of intense wet. And, and that's certainly what we've been seeing in the past decade. Things are changing. We have to recognise that. And uh, it makes our job here at the Bureau a little harder, of course, because you can't just look at the past and automatically think that'll be repeated in the future. Now, that's why we've seen a change in those winter weather patterns that we talk about, you know, where we see those uh, systems slipping away to the south more often. Is that why? Yeah, basically, uh, weather systems are further south than they used to be. So like, for southern Australia, those cold fronts that used to come along and, and come through Victoria or South Australia, Victoria, even Tasmania and, and up the coast you know, into New South Wales, some of them are slipping a little further south now and, and missing parts where they used to give very reliable rainfall. And we've seen that probably most noticeably in southwest Western Australia where the old winter patterns from the 70s or in, and earlier really haven't returned. They're just not getting those regular weekly or less cold fronts coming through. We're seeing it a bit more sporadic now. In the United States, for example, the terrible drought situation, they're running out of water in the Colorado River. So if we do see a flip side on La Nina here in Australia, that would be a positive for the rainfall pattern, say, in the United States or in North America. Yeah, well, La Nina has cooler water near South America, North America, warmer water near us. And that warm water drags the weather with it, basically. So while the warm water's near us, we get the rain, but North America and South America, they miss out. And certainly the drought they've been having there, and in the last couple of days there's been fires, um, and particularly around Boulder and Colorado and so on. Yeah, those fires and the dry weather is pretty clearly related to La Nina. They'll be crossing their fingers for the end of La Nina as well. The other thing we're hearing from the RFS is to be concerned this summer about grass fires because of the vegetation. So that's something, obviously, weather-related phenomenon this year too. Yeah, most certainly, Michael. The issue there is particularly up the East Coast. We've seen some you know, incredible rainfall and flooding in some areas. 
but we're still going to have a summer and that's, that flooding and that wet conditions have resulted in some amazing grass growth. So there's lots and lots of fuel. Having that summer come along, as things start to dry out by the end of summer, we are going to have a pretty high grass fire risk in many areas. And on the flip side, over in Western Australia, it just has been dry now for a few months and uh, they're already seeing some fires over there, including grass fires. So we just do need to keep really, uh, really cognizant of that grass fire risk and mow your fire breaks where you can and, uh, and, and be aware. Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology speaking with Michael Condon. We'll stay with the bomb and head to the duty forecaster today, senior forecaster Vince Rollins. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. Things are starting to heat up. They are. Probably not so much today, but certainly over the next uh, couple of days, things are going to start heating up. So at the moment, we've got a high-pressure system just sitting south of the Bight, and that's directing uh, mainly a southeast to south to southeasterly airstream over the state, just keeping temperatures around the coastal fringes um, quite cool and you know, just mild to warm. Uh, elsewhere. Look, there's a bit of cloud hanging around the, the northeast of the state as well, and we could still see some afternoon shower and thunderstorm activity up through that region. And there is potential there for some reasonably heavy rainfall if we do get some organised storms and some uh, some quite significant gusts out of that as well. So uh, just keep an eye out for any warnings that do get issued associated with those thunderstorms. But as we go through the next couple of days, that high just slowly moves eastwards. We will see winds go a little bit more easterly and then northeasterly. So that uh, really starts to see temperatures warm, warming up. So during tomorrow, we'll see temperatures creeping up again. Again, still a risk of some thunderstorms up in the, the far northeast. But it's really on Sunday we start to see temperatures uh, picking up and we start to see temperatures getting to the point um, from Sunday onwards where we could see some uh, heat wave conditions generated across uh, the south of the state. So that's basically from Sunday right through <clears throat> until at this stage, Tuesday, possibly Wednesday as well. But uh, those temperatures are uh, yeah, continuing to rise through Christmas Day and then Monday and Tuesday next week. We'll see uh, yeah, large areas of the state get uh, into the low 40s, so just very hot to very hot conditions um, extending over vast areas of the state uh, during that Monday-Tuesday <coughs> period. But there is a change on the way. We do see that change move into the far uh, southwest on Tuesday, so around the Nullarbor Plain region, hitting the sort of western coast of Air Peninsula as well later in the day. And that does bring a little bit of thunderstorm activity with it over the far west. But as that change uh, continues to move east northeastwards on Wednesday, the southerlies behind it bring much cooler conditions um, throughout most parts of the state, not quite reaching the northeast, but eventually during Thursday and Friday, those cooler conditions will extend throughout. But uh, yeah, could see some showers just moving across the state during Wednesday as well as that change moves across and uh, perhaps a little bit of thunderstorm activity in the west and uh, also over eastern districts as that trough moves through. And then on Thursday, mainly dry, just a little bit of a risk of some thunderstorm activity over parts in the northeast pastoral district, but then fining up on Friday and start to see temperatures just slowly building again as the next high-pressure system uh, becomes a dominant feature south of the Bight and that will move eastward. So, yeah, certainly heating up. Be aware of those heat wave conditions 
coming through. But uh, yeah, at this stage, most of the state looking very nice for for Christmas, Cassie. So hopefully, everyone uh, gets to enjoy uh, a fine Christmas day. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, for those people um, around the the River Murray that are affected by the floods, hopefully, uh, you know, they get to enjoy a bit of a, a Christmas day as well. But uh, yeah, so that's basically it for the next week, Cassie. Thanks so much for that, Vince, and Merry Christmas. Okay, thanks, Cassie. Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be partly cloudy tomorrow. Medium chance of showers in the northeast, a slight chance elsewhere. Could be a thunderstorm around, though. No, overnight it's getting down to 17 to 21 degrees, but the day getting warm, 28 to 34 degrees. In the lower western, it's going to be a sunny morning tomorrow, but could build to a thunderstorm in the far east in the afternoon and early evening. Overnight, the temperatures are going to fall to between 15 and 18 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the low to mid 30s. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12:30. Listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au/rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, I'm so glad you could join me today for the last show before Christmas. I am Cassie Huff and given it's the time of year when many people come together with friends and family and often share a meal, I thought it might be nice to hear what's coming in from our farmers, in particular seafood, given South Australia is the seafood frontier best seafood in the country in this state. Prawns are a particular favourite at this time of year. Indeed, it might be the only time of year some people they eat prawns, some of you eat prawns, but the season hasn't been in fish's favour this year, unfortunately. So if you haven't got your Christmas prawns yet, you'd want to get in quick because they're going fast. There's a lot less stock in Australia this year than, than on average. A bit of a warning there if you're a prawn lover, you don't want to miss out. Prawns are a favourite of mine, but I think my favourite Christmas food is my family's traditional sago plum pudding. We always have it. It's just a bit of a family tradition. If you'd like to share with me your favourite Aussie Christmas food or perhaps your family food traditions at Christmas time, you can text me on 0467 922891. I'd love to hear some of the things you might be tucking into this Christmas, uh, knowing full well that that's going to be a tough time of year for many people as well. So we'll also touch base with Food Bank to see how they've gone raising money and food for people who might be doing it a bit tough this Christmas as well. More on that soon, but we'll find out what's making news now with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, authorities in the Riverlands say 14 levees along the River Murray have failed and are beyond repair, and another 18 have major defects. Water levels in the towns of Renmark and Berry are expected to peak in the coming days, and flooding likely won't recede until mid-January as the Murray-Darling Basin is exposed to drier conditions. Police say a 27-year-old man is in hospital in a serious condition from an assault on Hindley Street in the Adelaide CBD. They say the man from Seaford Meadows in Adelaide South was found unconscious outside a pub just before 5 o'clock this morning. He was rushed to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And three critically endangered Sumatran tiger cubs have been born at Adelaide Zoo for the first time. Zookeepers were monitoring CCTV when they saw Mother Delilah go into labour before the cubs arrived on Wednesday. The sex of the cubs will not be determined until their first health check when they're about two to four weeks old. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. 
Well, Christmas is a time for celebration and getting together with family and friends, but the cost of living has gone up so much this year. At the best of times, Christmas can be a big strain on the bank balance, so I can imagine this year is very difficult for some people. The ABC helped to raise money and donations for Food Bank to help people get access to food and meals and uh, perhaps something special at Christmas time. And uh, I was interested to hear how that went in the end. Greg Patterson is the CEO of Food Bank SA and Central Region. He joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. How many meals did the ABC Food Bank Drive end up delivering? Well, it was uh, final result for South Australia was just under 250,000 meals. And for the Northern Territory, and it was the first year that we've done, we've tapped the Northern Territory, was, was just under 80,000 meals up there. So it was... It was you know, far beyond what we what we were hoping for, and uh, we, you know, on behalf of everybody at Food Bank, I'd like to pass on our thanks to the uh, to all the listeners of the ABC and to the staff and 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 all the people around the regional stations who who all helped on those that, on that day. That is a massive effort. Uh, what's that? Two hundred and fifty in South Australia and additional eighty in yes. in Northern Territory. What a great effort! I mean, it's not the only. F- fundraising that Food Bank does, only a small part of the donations, really. So what sort of numbers have you done overall this year? Well, I mean, to put as much as the, the, the result was fantastic, to put it into context, though, we need to, we need to supply 700,000 meals every month so, or the, get the equivalent food to that. Uh, so that's, if you, if you look at that in context, where that's not even half half a month's worth of food. So um, we we need to raise... We've got to try to find about 3.6 million kilos of food every year. And much of that, uh, a large proportion of that is stuff that we have to buy ourselves. And like everyone is finding at the supermarkets, we're also having to pay more for food than what we were, say, 12 months ago, where, where milk and meat and, and all those key staple products are, are, are really skyrocketing in price. And so that's impacting on our ability to, to get more food as well. So, um, you know, so we are, you know, trying to raise more money to, to buy those essential foods and also asking, you know, our, our food donors, uh, the big food companies, are already themselves uh, doing it. You know, they're, they're providing what they can, but many of them are actually struggling because of the floods on the East Coast. And, and we know that they're, they're sort of struggling to get the, enough raw materials to meet the demand that they have. And what sort of need are you seeing this Christmas? Unfortunately, all of our sites, and we've got 11, 11 sites, uh, what we call food hubs around, around South Australia and Central Australia, and, and, and you know, we've got four in the Adelaide metro region and all the rest are in the, uh, are in the outer, uh, you know, one in the outer metro, metropolitan and all the rest are in regional and remote areas. All of them have seen record numbers of people um, coming in to get, get uh, food assistance over the last two to three months. And, and many are now, uh, it's no longer that stereotypical um, um, characteristics of people who are you know, unemployed or have you know, victims of domestic violence or single parents, things like that. Now, now we're getting more and more people who, who have jobs, who have mortgages, some of them, but for whom the cost of living increases and, and things like electricity and fuel and, and rent is such now that they, they really can't afford to eat for, for all of the month, um, particularly if they get a large electricity bill suddenly coming in. 
So, so our concern is, um, you know, we, we've, we hold a great deal of concern for what's going to happen next year. Um, and what we're doing at the moment is try to mobilise as much as possible to, to, to pro- provide a dignified way for those people to get food, particularly if they've never had to do that before. It's, it's, it, t- it puts a real hit on, on, a, on a young family's self-esteem if they suddenly find themselves having to, having to go to someone like Food Bank to, um, to get food or, or they're not, a, and, and not able to feed their family. So, um, so that's going to that's our, that's I think going to be our, the reality for the for the near future. Um, you know, that's not to say we're still helping all the all the normal people that we help the the, the people who are disadvantaged or who, who are unemployed or who, for whatever reason, are, have issues that prevent them from from being able to sustain their own family. But um, you know, we've got to try to find a way of making sure that we are there to help those people when they're in need. And I'm sure people are very grateful for the work you do to help make their lives and Christmas a little brighter. And obviously you've got your emergency role this year as well in the Riverlands. And I know that's been activated. Thank you so much for your time today. It's an absolute pleasure, Cassie. And thank you. Please pass on my thanks to all the listeners and to everyone at ABC. And we wish everyone a happy Christmas. And we hope all of you, all of the families uh, do eat well over this Christmas period. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas. That was Greg Patterson, the CEO of Food Bank SA and Central Region. There, uh, obviously, it is a tough time for many people, but uh, it's good to hear that there are lots of donations coming in and uh, and people have been able to access support. We uh, will head across to uh, the Riverland now to someone who is on their way home for Christmas, and that is Demetria Panagiotaris, the rural reporter normally in the northern west. Good afternoon. Hi, Cass. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've, I've jumped uh, ship. I'm in, I'm in the Riverland patch, and, uh, yeah, just thought I would give a bit of an update on some of the things I'm, I'm seeing this way. So if people are on the road, uh, how's the drive been so far? Have you had to do many detours? Um, yeah, well, I headed off this morning sort of anticipating that there would be a few road closures or uh, at, at least delays, but it hasn't been too bad so far um, other than the, the odd uh, harvester I've been stuck behind. But uh, other than that, there's a, there's a lot of signage about, especially as you get closer to the Riverland area where you're told uh, Morgan Road's closed and you can't access the highway from there. Um, but generally speaking, quite quiet. Not uh, a great deal of caravans uh, about, but, yeah, one patch in particular which uh, of the road that looks a little bit uh, precarious is probably sort of towards the Riverland, about an hour away in the Taylorsville area. There's sort of a section there where the Murray runs parallel and, and quite close to the road and the water's sort of spilling uh, over over onto the bitumen. So it'll be interesting to see yeah, the situation there after the peak flows through. Um, hopefully I can get back. But uh, where I am now in Karinga, lots of uh, excavators around, uh, tourists jumping out of cars, taking, taking pictures and, uh, yeah, caravan parks seem to be okay. Um, thanks to a, a huge newly built levy, but as we just heard uh, in the news headlines there, that there's some levies that are, are damaged and breaking in the area. So let's hope they uh, they hold out. Have you had a chance to speak to any locals in the area? Um, yeah, I've spoken to a few. Um, earlier I was speaking with a Kingston grape and citrus grower who really just stressed... Um, me how this flood has been a, an unwelcomed, uh, I guess, addition to a really tough year already. Uh, he talked 
problems with exporting uh, last year. He mentioned that last year his Shiraz was fetching about 400 a tonne and this year it's dropped down to 165 and uh, the wineries are saying we're full. So uh, that's, that was uh, really, that's really difficult. Uh, on top of that, you've got fertiliser drums. He said last year 525 a drums, this year 1,700. So generally speaking, we're looking at input costs three times higher and, and then those, those wine prices three times lower. And he's, he's got worries, uh, disease pressure worries, downy mildews around. He's got he's got citrus as well. So fruit fly is also something that he's uh, concerned about. And, and now he's got the, the floodwater reaching his blocks and currently touching about 100 rows, which is three different varieties of grapes for him. And I guess the concern there is uh, if it reaches it, uh, you know, and, and he won't know until the, the, the peak does flow and come through how, how long that water will last because if it does hang around for more than a month, he said those those vines just uh, won't recover um, and that will then go on to affect citrus and reaching the sugar levels in in uh, in, in the citrus for the season ahead. So lots, lots of uh, um, concern and, and quite an upsetting time for him. Yeah, it never rains, but it pours. Hopefully he doesn't uh, see the worst of the damage that he's expecting there, but it certainly has been a tough time for grape producers. So, well, uh, thanks for the update on the roads and uh, drive safely. Everyone who is on the road over this holiday period, I do hope you have a safe and happy holiday. And you as well, Demetria. You have a lovely holiday. Thank you, and, and you too, Kath. Demetria Panagiotaris there on her way home, just giving us an update on what the roads are like around the Riverland at the moment as the uh, River Murray reaches or is approaching its peak levels soon. It is 18 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. We'll stay in the river and the Riverland and while most of the focus in the Riverland is obviously on preparing for the flood peak and dealing with the issues that are even being seen now, the region's residents are also still getting ready to celebrate Christmas uh, on their fun farm at Winara just off the Sturt Highway. Ed and Margaret Simpendorfer have been selling Christmas treats to Riverland residents and while said the flood preparations are front of mind, they say there's not been a, there's been no shortage of customers. It seems like it's the same as last year. People are getting ready for Christmas and it's become a real tradition with people coming out here with their families, picking a tree and taking them home and decorating them. So it's become a real tradition out here. And what are people usually looking for with a Christmas tree? I mean, is it a, it sounds like saying yes to a wedding dress or something. <laughs> yes, like the shape of the tree, the height of the tree, if it's dense or if it's you know, open, that type of thing. And what usually happens, people run around the property and have a look and they look at one and say, oh, that looks just right. Then I say, go for a walk right through the property and have another look and, you know, see if you can find one better. And 80% of the time they'll come back to the first one that they saw. What the children do is they just make for the tallest tree and they want mum and dad to bring that home. And it would hardly fit in the front door, usually. Yeah, how... They choose. How do people transport them and, and put them in their houses? I imagine, yeah, like you've got people bringing out tape measures or something? Yeah, people can bring tape measures. One lady, she came out the first year and she took a beautiful tree home and she got it home and it hit the ceiling and actually marked the ceiling. So she remembers not to go and get a bigger one. So she comes out with a tape measure. She's a beautiful lady and I saw her there this year and she was standing way up the end of the property with a hand way up above her head trying to measure the tree so she's determined 
not to go home with a tree that's too big. I think what happens, like out in the, you know, the farm, they look, it's hard to judge how tall they really are, but when you take them through your front door, it's like they magically sort of increase in size. A lot of farmers have been really, um, yeah, like it's been a good year for a lot of farmers in some respects, but there's been a lot of um, cost rises in, from power to, to fuel to fertiliser increases. Yeah, have you had any um, yeah, cost increases this year and has that impacted the prices of trees? Well, everything's increased, like electricity and water and pumping costs and things like that. So we've uh, lifted the price of the tree by $10, which isn't that much. They're still a very reasonable price. So they range between 50 and $70. And how much does that help um, recoup some of the costs that yeah, would go into to growing them? Yeah, it definitely recoups the price. And uh, I think it, they're still a reasonable price, so we're quite happy with that. Um, so your, your busiest times now with um, selling, selling trees... Um, what happens if there's any trees left after Christmas? Do you have a bit of a, a Christmas sale like <laughs> at the end of it? No, we haven't thought about that, but that's a good idea. <laughs> or do you sell uh, Christmas in July trees? Oh, we did sell uh, one in July and we said oh, I can have that one for half price and uh, he was quite happy with that, but he hasn't come to collect his tree yet. <laughs> Oh, well, that, as I said, there's been a shortage of um, some trees. Uh, some tra- uh, some Christmas tree growers on the east coast have had had some trouble with their trees with their big rains. Um, you, could you expect any orders? Because um, you, you're the main grower here for for the Riverland and and a lot of places. But do you you know how far do your orders usually go? We usually get people from Mildura, Wakery, around the Riverland towns, of course. And we had one sold from Port Augusta, so that's the furthest it's been. But uh, we've never thought of selling them in Adelaide, but. You know, if someone really wanted to get stuck into growing Christmas trees out here, they could do that and make quite a good living. Now, I'm 78 and, uh, you know, I've retired and I want to get out of this business uh, after a while. But I just love doing it, so, you know, it might take a few years. What do you guys love most about being uh, Christmas tree farmers? I think it's the tradition, you know, the kids coming out here, running up and down the rows, trying to find a tree and then taking them home and, uh, you know, decorating them. And just the spirit of Christmas is just so beautiful. And all our customers are happy because it's Christmas, so that's that's really good. Yeah, that would be nice. Margaret and Ed Simpendorfer speaking with Eliza Berlage. And staying with uh, Eliza, the festive season uh, looks a, a little different this year for many people, particularly in the Riverland, with the state government banning recreational activities uh, on the border between uh, New South Wales, uh, Victoria and also uh, and, and between... Uh, between the New South Wales and Victoria border with South Australia and Wellington until the floodwaters recede. Eliza Berlage caught up with commercial fisherman Garrick Warwick, one of only six people in the state allowed to catch yabbies under the current restrictions. Oh, wow, that's a big bucket of yabbies. They've just been cooked, so they're still draining. And, uh, yeah. How has yabby fishing been this season so far? Uh, a bit slow so far, starting to get better, but as the weather warms up, it should get better and better. Summertime in the Riverlands quite as closely associated with yabbies and yabbies at Christmas, is that right? Yes, it is. If the water flows high or the wood levels are high and the weather's right, it should be a good time for yabbies. So how is this year compared to, to recent years? Uh, it's a bit slow at the moment, but it will be a, a big year soon. Uh, the water's going to be up for a long time and when it drops, they'll, they'll be everywhere. Um, 2016, the last reasonable yabby year we had. When does your season normally start and end, by the way? Uh, depends on the high flows in the river and the warmer water. Uh, temperature normally around 22 degrees, they start getting active. So all of that 
cooler water rather than I've heard people say oh there's so much water it must be crazy for yabbies but is, is the water a bit bit cool for them with all the stuff coming down from the darling yes very unseasonally cool with so uh, water temperature at the moment is only about 20 degrees and it's just dropped the last few days with this cooler chain so hopefully next week it's warming up the water temperature will come up and the yabbies will go, start moving with them so how many are usually pulling in pulling in a day at the moment compared to, to years when it is a bit warmer at this time at the moment it's up and down a bit with the cooler days and everything, so we're probably getting 40, 50 kilo a day. And that's, is that much less or more compared to, to an average year? Uh, probably a lot less than normal, but like I say, they will pick up as the weather warms up and especially when the water starts peaking and dropping, that's when they really start going. And how long have you been uh, commercially fishing yappies for? Uh, over 30 years, probably since about 1987. You've seen some uh, very different years there, you know, I guess now compared to, say, the, the millennium drought. I mean, that must have been a really a difficult year for, for yabby fishing. Yeah, we, I didn't fish for about 10 years during the yabbies for the millennium drought, but um, the last 10 years we've had three yab, decent yabby seasons. And how do you guys go with demand for yabbies around Christmas time? Yeah, this time of year the demand is very high right through to probably after New Year because yabbies haven't been around for a while, for a few years, so everyone's after them. Do you have any favourite ways that you like to serve them up at, at Christmas time? I mean, I'm, I'm from Sydney, so I'm used to having a, a bowl of prawns and you either shell them in the morning or you shell yourself at the Christmas table. How do people use yabbies around here? Yeah, all different ways. Some people pickle them, put them in jars, a bit of vinegar, uh, fresh, but yeah, I just like them cooked and fresh. And we were talking about before with a bit more floating around in the river at the moment and you, you cook them here. Have you had to add any extra steps to, to the, the cooking process to, to make sure they're, they're clean here? No, the weather coming from is nice, nice clean yabbies at the moment. There's no black water around yet. It could be later on. Um, no, it's just, just got to make sure they're cooked in good salt water and cooled down in nice slurry salt water. So, yeah, despite, you know, every, everyone's obviously very focused and preparing on the floods, but they're still preparing for Christmas and, and ordering those yabbies? Yes, there's lots of orders. Christmas time, there's, the books are full. What's your busiest? Do you have a busiest day or busiest period? Um, weekends. Um, there's a lot of tourists coming up looking at the floods and the weekend we sold out two days in a row. Gosh, commercial fisherman Gary Warwick speaking to Eliza Berlage about the roaring trade he's doing in yabbies. It's a crustacean of a different sort perhaps to your usual Christmas Fair, but uh, prawns certainly are not. Prawns are a classic for South Australia and Australia indeed. But if you haven't got your prawns for Christmas yet, you might just miss out because this year prawn numbers are down for a number of reasons. But the industry says the quality is still high, so that's good news. Brooke Nindorf caught up with prawn boat skipper Jay Haldane about why tonnages are down for 2022. Uh, we've had a fairly lacklustre year this year, unfortunately. Um, last season was uh, yeah, one of our lowest catches um, for some time, and this pre-Christmas has um, been the same, um, really. There's sort of a, like a lag, lag effect, I suppose, from our last season. So our last stock assessment survey we did in October had our adult or our harvestable biomass down on our long-term average by about 30%. But at the same time, our juvenile stock or our what we call our rec- recruits, they were up by about the same volume, nearly just over 30%. So that's a good sign for um, next season, you know, when we go back in March, April, May. Is there a reason why it was down this year? Oh, there's several factors. Um, the main one, I suppose, is 
purely environmental. We never seem to have great catches during these La Nina um, weather years. And yeah, so generally speaking, we, you know, we tend to have lower catches um, just on that factor. You know, we are a um, completely natural resource and we just rely on nature to produce the prawns for us. And across Australia, almost all other prawn fisheries has been down this year as well. So it definitely feels like the La Nina's had an impact on that. Um, I suppose the other factor this year for us was um, just where the moons fell. Uh, We fish over the dark of the moon and most years we would fish in November and December over the darks. This year, however, the dark basically falls right on Christmas, which means we can't get our product to the market before Christmas if we fish in December. So we actually brought our fishing forward when we started in October this year and we've had lower water temps in general and it just means we're kind of early in the season which means the prawns aren't up and moving and, and aren't you know, out of the mud or the sand ready to be caught. So that, that's probably another factor that's um, made it a bit tough for us this year. What has that meant in terms of what sort of tonnages you were able to catch and, and when it comes to... Christmas demand what's the the numbers like there yeah well like I said we're definitely down uh, on our long-term average Um, so if you haven't got your Christmas prawns yet you'd want to get in quick because they're going fast there's a lot less stock in Australia this year than than on average does that mean high prices this year Uh, we have held um, really good prices we had good prices last year and we've got very good prices again this year so yes demand is strong and um, that is in part a reflection of the the lower stock that's around in terms of weather, you touched on there about some of the environmental factors with the La Nina. Did it, what did it mean in terms of just being out on the water in the boat? Yeah, we didn't have a bad run all in all. We, um, we probably missed a few days fishing. Um, in our October run, we had a gale warning at the end of our fishing period, which sent us home. So we probably missed a couple of days there. And then in our November run, uh, we actually delayed the start of our fishing because, again, we had gale warnings for the first couple of nights. So... Um, we probably lost a couple of days in, in that regard, but we didn't miss any nights during our fishing periods, although it wasn't always great weather. What's quality of the prawns like this year? Has that uh, been affected at all? Uh, the quality's actually as good as we've seen it for a very long time. Um, yeah, our size of the product was excellent, generally speaking, so that has also helped us, you know, that you know we get much higher price for our larger prawns, obviously, and having, you know, good prices and good size prawns has definitely... I suppose, yeah, made it made it less bad. And just finally, Christmas time. How do you have them, Shay? Do you uh, like them on Christmas Day, or are you over them by then, or what's your your best recipe? No, never get over prawns. Now, my honestly, my favourite is just cooked prawns. You know, we cook them out here on the boat for you, um, and yeah, I, I just love a good cold cooked prawn with a nice cold beer. That's pretty good. My kid's favourite, however, is we mix up a bit of garlic and oil and uh, wrap them in prosciutto and basil leaf tucked in underneath. And, yeah, the kids scoff them. They reckon they're great. How decadent. Prawn boat skipper Jay Haldane speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And staying with the the seafood theme, there's obviously prawns for Christmas, but... uh... A lot of other things are on your shopping list this week, I'm sure, as well. At the Fresh Fish Place in Port Lincoln, it's been extremely busy as people stock up on seafood. Manager Craig McCarthy says all this week has been all hands on deck. Yes, well, it started off uh, really busy and it um, it's still going flat out. So that was last week 
and then this week is even more and we're only three days into it and there's a whole six days of uh, training for this week. Does that change it having Christmas on a Sunday? It sure does. I think it's probably the perfect uh, retail setup, so you can shop from Monday right through to Saturday and Sunday's off. It's perfect. What's been the difference from this year to last year? Has much changed? Last year we saw you know, a few COVID cases getting around around Christmas. Has that changed it much this year? Uh, look, yeah, it, because of all the disruption with COVID, the last couple of Christmases, they've still been huge because people have travelled and they've been allowed out. Uh, so this is more back to normal, but, yeah, there's still more. We're still experiencing a lot more travellers, tourists, um, coming through. So it's fantastic for, for us and, I'd say, for all the businesses in Port Lincoln. And I guess it's a sort of perfect weather the last few days. There's still a bit of rain around in some parts, but Port Lincoln's had some pretty nice weather for, uh, for, for seafood. Yeah, would you know, everyone's a bit concerned with their, our uh, triple La Nina and it's been colder than normal and rain. But this week looks fine, you know. I'm more concerned for all the visitors uh, come to town that they have a great experience and warm weather helps and it looks like it's going to be warm, not too hot for this week, which is good for seafood. Uh, we don't want it too hot. And then uh, warming up for Christmas Day and, and, and the couple of days after the holiday. So that, that's almost perfect weather too. Have you gone with getting, uh, getting products, particularly the, the popular ones with, with prawns and oysters? Yes, uh, that's uh, always interesting. Prawns, uh, little, everyone was a little bit concerned because they, um, they lost uh, quite a few days out of their two short trips, November and December. But uh, we pretty much uh, got what we needed. And with the crayfish, the crayfish is fine because they've still got the problem with um, their main customer in, uh, in China. So there is uh, a lot of crays around because it's getting close to peak season. So that makes it a lot easier. We just go to the factories and get the crays fresh every morning, as many as we want, and uh, cook them. So everyone's, everyone's um, receiving freshly cooked crays that day. Fresh Fish Place Manager Craig McCarthy speaking with Brooke Nyendorf. That's all we have time for in the program today, but I do wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Uh, thanks for listening this year. I hope you have a safe and happy holiday period and uh, do take care on the roads over this time. It's always a bit of a, a hectic time of year and in particular just a bit of a shout-out to the farmers who are on their headers trying to get uh, as much of the crop off as they can before Christmas and indeed the heat wave that's coming next week. I hope everything goes smoothly for you. I'll be back next Tuesday. The Country Hour will keep going through this holiday period. So if you'd like to keep listening, you can always catch us on the radio in the the lunch break of the cricket or just at our normal time between 12 and 1. Right now, though, it's coming up to 1 o'clock. Time for news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.